0: So, yeah, thank you again, Father Lee, for those kind words. (laughs) And uh, it it really is a great pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, We spent all day yesterday in this same sanctuary talking about catechesis. And uh, I guess the one thing that's better than talking about catechesis (laughs) is doing catechesis. (laughs) So, um, it's a real pleasure. Um, As Father Lee already mentioned, uh, what I'd like to talk about with you is um, the notion of seeing God, and specifically, uh, or at least most emphatically, the notion of talking about seeing God, seeing God in the hereafter, which is usually called the beatific vision, uh, coming from the word beatitude, which means happiness. Uh, true happiness, true beatitude, is or lies in God Himself. God is true happiness. God is true beatitude. And that is our final end as Christians. That's the purpose for which we aim. Uh, Everything that we um, say and do in life is aimed or at least should be aimed. Uh, That uh, great hope of ours that we see God face to face as St. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. That we will see Him face to face. That's our final end. And so what I want to do this morning is is talk about final ends, about purposes, and after some introductory comments um, about ends in general and how ends function in our society, how purposes function in our society, really the bulk of what I want to do, um, till quarter after ten, right? The bulk of what I want to do is um, talk about St. Anselm with you, um, late... Uh, who wrote a book um, in the late 11th century, around 1098, um, with the uh, kind of odd title, perhaps for us, the Proslogion. Um, but title, whatever the title may be, it's an awesome, awesome book of contemplation and meditation. And so we're going to go along with with Saint Anselm on this contemplative journey, which is really what it is: this contemplative pilgrimage toward. The beatific vision towards seeing God face to face. And the reason, really, why that is um, an end or a purpose uh, worth talking about together this morning is that the notion of ends or purposes uh, is is one that's um, under some duress in our society, it's under stress. We do talk about ends, to be sure. We talk about purposes. We've got all kinds of purposes, often. But their purposes, typically, that you and I devise, that you and I come up with ourselves. Um, in our society, people love talking about purposes. I'm going to do X with a view to Y. And so, there are purposes. We do talk about purposes. But, typically, those purposes, those aims, are freely chosen. The aims that we impose on things around us. And so we arrange and rearrange our surroundings towards certain ends. For Anselm, the theologian that we're going to be looking at, that was different. For Anselm, ends were not primarily things that you've chosen ends that are far away from you at a distance and that somehow you've got to traverse this empty gap, this empty space in order to get at the end. Now for St. Anselm, the end was closely linked to and was, was part of the world in which we live. In other words, things are naturally made for a certain end. People desire their end. Why do they desire an end? Because they're naturally made for it. It's their purpose. In fact, the ter- a term that we don't use much anymore today, which really we should recover, <laughs> but is the term final end. When you talk about a final end, and when, when Christian theology typically has talked about a final end of something, the idea is that that final end serves as a cause. It's not just The purpose, in other words, that's far away so that you have to transverse this gap. Rather, the end, the telos, the purpose, is something that pulls you along. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about an appetite. He says, we have a rational appetite for seeing God. And that's like that in everything. Aristotle, long before Thomas Aquinas, Aristotle, too, said there are ends inherent in things. And he uses the example of a spider for which it is natural. I mean, not a rational appetite, a natural appetite. A spider has a natural appetite, a natural desire to make a web. And so... Everything in the creative order, including you and me as human beings, you and I as human beings, have natural ends, natural purposes. Again, the question why is that a notion that's important for you and me to talk about? Well, in modernity, the idea that there is this natural appetite or this rational appetite towards an end. And the notion that the end is in some way naturally already there in the created order. Modernity doesn't know what to do with that. Uh, So in the 17th century, for example, Francis Bacon um, famously writes, this is in 1620, Novum Organum, a book that he wrote. He says, final cause, final causality, he says, the idea, in other words, that the end pulls us along and that the end is already there pulling us. Final causality, he says, is a long way from being useful. You notice what he's doing. He's saying no to the whole Aristotelian heritage and to the whole Christian heritage of a final cause. Right? It's a, far away, sorry, it's a long way from being useful. In fact, he says, it actually distorts the sciences, except, he says, in the case of human actions. So he has, he has a, a reserved clause for us. As human actions. But what that does, Bacon and others in the 17th century, when they basically say, ends are here, indeed at the end, <laughs> and you and I in the creative order are here, separate from those ends. What that does in modernity is we've created a gap for ourselves in the way we look at things. We've created a gap between this world Ourselves on the one hand. The world of appearances you could say. The sensible world. And that final end. That God has in mind for us. Which makes it difficult for you and me. In our modern age. To think of the telos. As something that's attractive. Literally attractive. right? That attracts us. That is difficult for you and me. To think of it as something that. We can set our desires on. That just. We get distracted by all sorts of things. There's all sorts of distractions through the senses, right? And so the temptation constantly, it's always, it's a human temptation, but particularly in the modern age, the temptation is to let those sensible things determine everything that we say and do. To set our desires, in other words, entirely on pleasure, sensible things. Now, what Anselm does is, Anselm senses that tension. And he knows there is this attraction to just stick with the appearances and to say, God is far away. The telos, the end is far off. Who knows how I'll ever get there? Anselm knows already. This is in the late 11th century. He knows that there is this, this gap that's opening up for people. And increasingly so, as we're moving into the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages, and then modernity. And what he essentially does in this book, the Proslogion, is he meditates on the vision of God. And in that meditation, he wants to pull you and me as readers along so that we may set our desire on the, very, on the one thing that really matters, namely the face of God. That's what he aims for. Uh, people don't know, typically, the proslogion f- for that. Most of the time when you, when you read theological books about Anselm, it's all about some, some difficult argument about the existence of God. Um, the ontological argument for the existence of God. Um, I, I don't want to talk about that much today. Um, very briefly, very briefly, in case you're interested, okay? Um, it's, it's, the, the, the basics of it are, are pretty simple. And the, basic is, the basics are this, um, of the argument for the existence of God, right? God is, and the way Anselm puts that, the way he, he talks about God, the way he says it is, God is that than which nothing greater can be thought, right? Now, that's just ancient language. But basically what that says is, um, God's the greatest thing you can think of. I'll get back to that if, in case that sounds like a strange description of God, it is. Um, But God is the greatest thing you can think of. God is that than which nothing greater can be thought. That's his description of God. That's premise number one. But then he says, but if God is the greatest thing that we can think of, really, but to think of something is one thing. To be in reality is yet another. So it's greater to be in reality than just to be in thought. For sure, he says, it's greater to be than not to be. So it's greater to be in reality than just to think about it. So that's his second premise. It is greater to be in reality than just in thought. And then his conclusion is, well, therefore, God is not just in our thought. Because God is the greatest thing we can think of. God is not just, therefore, what we think of. But God is actually beyond our thought. God exists in reality. That's his conclusion. Now, we don't have to worry much about that argument for today, but just in case you're interested, and I'll actually secretly get back to it briefly later on, but it's mostly just for fun, mostly just for fun. Um, And and that's for Anselm, too, because people often, because they focus on the argument for the existence of God, they tend to think, oh, my goodness, this guy's a rationalist, and and, and he tries to argue by pure reason that, that God exists. Well, no. Anselm was a Benedictine monk. Uh, he lived, at least uh, at first, he lived in, in Normandy, in, in Beck, and he was an abbot there of, of, of a monastery. Later on, he became the Archbishop of, of Canterbury. But when he wrote this, he was, he was still a monk. He was an abbot in, in France. And uh, he's writing for his monks. And the form in which he writes is a form of a prayer. <laughs> This is faith-seeking understanding. He's not just making some purely rational argument. He's talking as a believer, and he's praying as a believer. And you can see that when you, when you, um, when you open up the book at the very beginning. Um, he searches for God all the way through the book, and he wants to pull us along on that search. He has a desire for God, and he wants to to get you and me to desire God in the same way that he longs for God. He writes at the beginning of his book, I was created to see thee. Note that. That's what I talked about at the very beginning, right? That there's something natural about our appetite to see God. He says, I was created for this. It's natural for the spider to spin its web. It's natural for me to long for God. And so he's going to struggle in this book constantly with the gap that he senses between himself and the ultimate purpose of seeing God. He knows he was made for it. He knows it's natural for him to see God. But so often he doesn't. And that's, of course, you're in my predicament. So often we don't. We don't see God the way we long to see Him. And often our desires aren't ordered rightly. and So we don't even desire often to see God. We put our desires on all these other appearances, these sensible things. So, I was created to see thee. He acknowledges that right from the outset. But then he said, and not yet have I done that for which I was made. I haven't done the very thing I was made for, namely to see God. And then he talks to you and me, and he says what what we should be doing. He says, enter the inner chamber of thy mind. Remember, he's writing for monks. So he's basically saying, get into your cell here, right? And also, more importantly, get into the cell of your mind. Get into the chamber of thy mind. Shut out all thoughts except that of God, and such as can aid thee. In seeking him, think of God and God alone here. Close thy door and seek him. It's all about seeking God, this book, right? Seek him. Speak now, my whole heart. Speak now to God, saying, I seek thy face, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Psalm 27, right? Beautiful psalm. Thy face, Lord, I will seek. And that basically, that quotation from Psalm 27, sets the tone for the entire proslogion, for the entire book. And come thou now, O Lord my God, teach my heart where and how it may seek thee. He doesn't even know how to seek God. He senses this gap between himself and the ultimate end, right? Teach my heart where and how it may seek thee, where and how it may find thee. How is he going to traverse? How is he going to get across this gap between where he is, with his desires all over the place, all kinds of distraction, and the end of seeing God? How is he going to get there? And the problem, in some sense, isn't just him, so it seems at least, but the problem is God himself. Because St. Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, that God lives in an unapproachable light. God is transcendent. God himself is transcendent. He's invisible. And the scriptures say constantly that no man can see him and live. So if God is invisible, says St. Anselm, and then I'm, I'm quoting him here, who shall lead me to that light, that unapproachable light? Who shall lead me to it if it's unapproachable? If God is invisible, that I may see thee in it. I've never seen thee, O Lord, my God. Now, in some sense, that's an overstatement. But what he's saying here, what he immediately adds is, I do not know thy form. In other words, even though it may be true that that God in some ways has revealed himself, and that is profoundly true, nonetheless, there is a real sense in which I haven't yet reached the object of my desire. I haven't yet seen God's form. What, O oh, most high, shall this man do? An exile far from thee. You see again how he highlights that gap? An exile, he says. He's, he's, not, he's not at home, and he longs for his home. And so he engages in prayer, knowing that it is only in prayer that he is going to be able to see God, and knowing that it is only in prayer that the argument that I talked about earlier that the argument is going to make sense to him right it's like talking to a non-christian and saying and 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 arguing with that person talking with that person (laughs) pleading with that person how am i going to make that person see what i see in some way at least what i see in some way how am i going to get there and um A strictly rational argument just isn't going to do, is it? A purely rational argument isn't going to do it. Because pure reason is far away from God. A purely natural argument isn't going to do it. And so, Anselm knows that somehow faith and reason, prayer and reason, need to link up with each other. And once they link up, once they click... Then all of a sudden he gets the argument, right? That's the purpose of this book. And he wants the reader to get to that point, to get the argument by getting caught up in the prayer, which is the form of this book, and and getting caught up in the very desire, the very longing that that Anselm uh, expresses in, in the beautiful rhetoric, the beautiful language of this book. So he knows that if it is in faith, and only in faith, that reason is going to truly make sense. That any rational argument by God is truly going to make sense. He knows that he depends on God's light. And so he acknowledges that to God in his prayer. He can see, he can have his blindness removed only if the light shines down on him and, and, and removes the scales from his eyes, as it were. And so that's his prayer. And that's his acknowledgement. He says, teach me to seek thee. Right? He doesn't even know how to seek. Teach me to seek thee and reveal thyself to me. In other words, he depends on God's prior revelation to him. God first needs to reveal him himself, and when he does that, then something can happen. But Anselm is worried that yes, God is out there and he isn't willing to acknowledge that. But, but if God doesn't assist him with grace, if God's light doesn't shine, how is he going to see? How is he going to properly desire? Interesting, when I was working on some of this stuff on the Beatific Vision, some of the authors... Put this beautifully they recognize their own weakness much like st. Anselm and they say so often my my very desires are distorted right and I, I it's not even that I don't see God but if I'm honest with myself often I don't even desire to see God I've got other things <laughs> that I desire appearances right sensible world pleasures there's other things I desire and so often not often, but, but at times you, you, you hear certain authors saying, I know one thing, though. I, what I can say to God is that I desire to desire you. I long to long for you. And that's kind of what you see here in Anselm. He doesn't say it in those words, but that's what it is. Teach me to seek thee. Now, of course, he's seeking all along already. That's why he's starting to write this book. But, but he wants to be taught properly to set his desires on God himself, so that beyond that he may see God himself. So really what this book is, I mean, yeah, it's an argument for the existence of God, but most profoundly, it's a mystical handbook. Um, In some ways, it's, it's rational. In some places, it's difficult to read, but there are sections, and I'll read some sections for you. There are sections that absolutely take your breath away and that make you want to reread even the sections or read through even the sections that are difficult to follow at times. Uh, It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, If you want to pick it up, you want to pick up the, not the very recent edition, there's an earlier edition uh, that you want to pick up on because the language is just so much more beautiful, (laughs) so much more beautiful. Then want to get the earlier edition, not the later, you know, Cleaned out modern language edition. <laughs> um, in any case, it's a mystical handbook. And he says right away at the beginning, as, as we saw, you know, close, close thy door, etc., etc. It is for the purpose of contemplating God. And he says that explicitly, that it is for contemplation, as he puts it. So the goal here is contemplation. And when he's talking about contemplation, he's talking as a monk reading the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, praying over the scriptures, and so coming to contemplation. It's a practice called Lectio Divina, divine reading, sacred reading. He knows that the monks do this every day, this Lectio Divina, this sacred reading. And he wants to offer this book as a guide, as, as a mode, you could almost say, as a way of of sacred reading my book he says take it don't read it too fast especially don't read it too fast like read it slowly read it meditatively go over it and over it and over it again and that way you can learn to contemplate you can come to see God's face even in some way at least even in this life You come to share in this contemplation in your very cell or in your upstairs bedroom or wherever. You can come to share already in a vision of God which awaits us forever at the very end. In other words, the gap doesn't have to be a gap. Because we can contemplate God today, he says. That's what he's aiming at with this book. So... God is always already there waiting for us. Waiting for us to meditate on his scriptures. Meditate on beautiful books such as Anselms. Praying to God. And seeking the face of God. How is that possible? Because God is present everywhere. He's not just an end, a telos waiting over there. He's here with us. Because the way we live and move and have our being is what? but being in God. And so he writes, Yesterday and today and tomorrow have no existence except in time. These are temporal things. But thou, he says about God and to God, thou, although nothing exists without thee, nevertheless thou dost not exist in space or in time. God is beyond space and time. And you might think, oh, that means God is far away. But then he goes on and he says, But all things exist in thee. All things exist in thee. For nothing contains thee, but thou containest all. God contains everything, including your and my life. So God is not there at the very end, waiting to see if you and I are going to struggle through to make it. No, he's there constantly with you. He's there constantly already there for you. The very breath that you breathe is possible because the spirit is breathing in and through you. And so, contemplation for Anselm is a distinct possibility. Anselm says the gap is one that's really deep down illusory. It's one that we ourselves dream up to keep God at a distance. God is always already there. it's not to say that Anselm doesn't struggle with seeing more of god he does and he does all the way through this book um and and constantly he he expresses his frustration almost at not yet seeing god with the intimacy and with a depth that he wants to see god and that he longs to see god i tried he writes at one point i tried to rise to the light of god and i have fallen back into my darkness something we all experience sometimes we sense that we're closer to god we think, yes, God is being gracious to me, and I see something of God's light here, and we fall back again. Um, most famously, of course, St. Augustine in the Confessions talks exactly like that when he's with his mother, Monica, right, in, in the harbor city of Ostia in Italy, and he has this, this amazing mystical experience where he describes exactly what Anselm is after, where, where they sense a union with God, a seeing of God that they haven't had before. And then, just like that, all that sweet mystic communion that he had with his mother in God, in Christ, seems gone. And it's darkness again, the way that Anselm talks about it, right? It's darkness again. Do thou help me, he says. Do thou help me for for thy goodness sake. And he means that quite literally, right? (laughs) For thy goodness sake. Lord, I sought thy face. This is not quite, we're quite a ways into the proslogion now here. And again, he's quoting Psalm 27, right? There's two, two places where that psalm comes up in, in the proslogion. And it's like, a, like an anchor that holds the whole thing together. It's like a foundation. Again, he says, Lord, I sought thy face. Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face from me. He's not giving up. With the psalmist, he keeps pleading. For God's light in God's face. Free me from myself. Toward thee. Cleanse. The pure in heart. will see God. The pure in heart. Cleanse. Heal. Sharpen. Enlighten. The eye of my mind. That it may behold thee. Let my soul recover its strength. And with all its understanding. Let it strive toward thee. Notice this is not just an emotional. Not just. The thing of the feeling, feelings. No, he's, the way he sees God, and he's starting again from a posture of faith, right? But the way in which he knows he can see more of God is by digging into the scriptures and by using the mind that of his understanding which God has given him. Sharpen and lighten the eye of my mind that it may behold thee. Let my soul recover its strength. And with all its understanding, faith-seeking understanding, with all its understanding, let it strive toward thee. O oh Lord, what art thou, Lord? What art thou? What shall my heart conceive thee to be? Right? He needs more light from God to get more of an understanding of the character of God, of who God is, what God is. He's not content, in other words, simply with having this conclusion to his rational argument and knowing that God exists. But to truly know that God exists for Anselm, and he recognizes that at its heart, to truly know that God exists is to know at one and the same time who he is. What art thou, Lord? What art thou? What shall my heart conceive thee to be? And it's at that point, quite a ways now into the proslogion already. It's so at that point that he recognizes that, well, maybe the way I've been talking about God all along here in the book wasn't the best way. or wasn't the fullest way. Right? Because there's always more to God. Always. God's infinite. There's always more to God. Remember when I gave you the argument at the very beginning, argument for the existence of God? The, the first premise was, um, God is that in which nothing greater can be conceived. Right? which is a simply a fancy way for saying God is the greatest thing that can be thought. But is that really adequate to talk about God? God is the greatest thing you can think of? Is God like some, some fancy thing that you set your desires on, some object out there that I dream up in my mind that I can think of? If that's true, then God is in my mind. And then... God doesn't just, then God doesn't comprehend me, but then I I comprehend God. And there's something wrong with that picture, right? (laughs) That I would, would comprehend God rather than God comprehending me. No, God encompasses me. I don't encompass God. So, Lord, he then says, Lord, thou art not only that than which nothing greater can be thought. Thou art not only the greatest thing I can think of, but thou art something greater than can be conceived. Right? Because remember, the second premise, to be real is greater than just to think. God is greater than anything in my mind, anything I can dream up with, even the greatest thing I can think of. There was a monk, just as a little side If we fifth time. Well... Yeah, so there was a monk uh, who who wrote a a book against Garnelo. He wrote a book against Anselm, and he objected. And he said, look, just because you can think of the most beautiful island ever, ever, doesn't mean the island exists. Well, no, says Anselm in response to Gonilo. That's true. But, and then he goes back to this line that I just gave you. God isn't just the greatest thing you can think of. God is beyond our comprehension. God is greater than we can think of because God is being itself. God is real. God is beyond our minds. God is in reality. Thou art something greater than can be conceived, and to truly and most fully um, see and experience. That, what Anselm calls joyous, that um, beautiful face of God, for that we need the eschaton. For that we need eternity. And so what he tries to do in in the proslogion is he tries to pull you and me along and in contemplation, experience something of the sweetness of the vision of God. So we continue on our pilgrimage until then, indeed, we'll see the reality. The reality of the face-to-face vision of God. Anselm, I think, often gets a bad rap. Um, people, people often think he's a rationalist. And at least, I hope that the way you've heard me talking about it, I mean, does he use reason? Well, yeah, he does. <laughs> is, he a, is, is he a rationalist? Is it just pure reason that he uses? No, no. Everything begins in faith here. And the whole rational thing makes sense only if you start in faith. But just because he's not a rationalist, not a Cartesian foundationalist, for those of you who know about Descartes, right? just because he's not a rationalist, That doesn't mean he does the opposite and lapses into some sort of fideism that says, well, you know, um, we can't talk about this rationally, so all is just rhetoric. Let's just see if we can, with the power of the will, (laughs) convince another person. No. What really convinces someone for Anselm is neither just pure reason, nor is it just the beauty of his rhetoric, Right in a postmodern sort of fashion. Both of those play a role, right? The reason plays a role, and the beauty of his language and the rhetoric play a role too. I love it, but they function, they work only because Anselm himself has seen something of God. Not the whole thing, not everything of God. The eschaton isn't here yet, but he has experienced. And seen something of God. And because of that, he is convinced that his mind is is working in ways that it didn't before. And because of that, he's convinced that also his rhetorical strength is able to do certain things. The power of his argument, the beauty of his argument can do certain things that it couldn't do before. But he's saying to these monks, and he's saying to you and me, if you've seen something of God in your life you can trust that rationally talking about God and searching for the beauty of God is going to lead you ultimately to a face-to-face vision of God himself. Um, It's almost pretty much quarter after. I'm not sure if we have questions or not to what we do at this point, Father Lee. Briefly. So... Anybody who wants to ask a question, please feel free. Yes, please. I have a question. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas at the end of his ministry uh, saw something in church that caused him to quit writing and quit talking about it. Yes. Do you think maybe that was a vision of God? Yeah, the question is that uh, St. Thomas Aquinas at the very end of his life um, had an experience in church that left him deeply unsettled. And that um, made him say, everything I've written so far is straw, and, and, and he wasn't going to talk about it anymore. Is it something like this? Uh, I don't really dare say. I generally am inclined to, 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 to answer negatively and say, no, probably not. And the reason for that is that something may well have happened to him physically, which is why he died shortly thereafter. So something may have happened with his mind that left him incapable, actually, of talking about that. So people talk about what what is the situation here with with Aquinas. But regardless of of historically of of what's the the scoop with Thomas Aquinas, it is true, it is true that um, 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 St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says that he was taken up into the third heaven into the paradise of God, and saw things there um, that he was uh, that, that that cannot be captured in words that we cannot talk about properly. And so mystics often say that, yeah, the contemplation I've had I have to share with with you. So I, I'll put something in words, but the words don't fully capture <laughs> the original experience. And that's true, I think. Even even if we, even to the extent that you and I have in some small way, seeing God and experience God. To articulate that to other people is a different, different thing. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yes, Ralph. Could you talk more about the nature of sin within Anselm's vision? you reply to it? Or it would it be good to... In- yeah, it's a great question. The question of sin in Anselm. Um... Uh, when you when you read this book, you might think, "My goodness, he has great great confidence in reason," and, and, and people sometimes say that that Anselm um, stands on the cusp of modernity, and that now we have this 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 human reason that can do things uh, w- without any constraints, um, and, and 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 this 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 previous. Uh, Preoccupation with sin. We're now finally leaving behind us and so on. That's not St. Anselm, actually. Anselm is deeply convinced of his sin. When you read Anselm's... I mean, it's somewhat here in this book because he knows that his sin makes him incapable in an important sense of seeing God. But where that really comes out, I think, is in his meditations and his prayers. When you read his meditations and prayers all the negative stereotypes that you had about Catholicism, you know, about beating yourself up. Or maybe all the negative stereotypes that you had about Calvinism, about beating yourself up. (laughs) They're all true there, pretty much. (laughs) He is deeply aware of his sinfulness. Um, Now, he's also aware that naturally we're made to see God, right? And, and, And that comes through in this book. So it's not like... For Anselm, we're totally depraved. Because he knows that we're made with a desire for God. And naturally, therefore, we're made, with, made for virtue, not for vice. But he also knows that often you and I are distracted. The, the whole argument here is basically what he does here throughout is he tries to create some stability for, their, for the monks The biggest problem that you and I have about seeing God is these distractions, right? Toward appearances, distractions toward pleasures. And they create images in the mind and they begin to lead a life of their own. That's why he writes what he writes. Sin, distraction, sin makes it necessary for us to to have certain structures that, that make it possible, for example, the structure of medita- meditation on the Scriptures, that make it possible for us, again, to get redirected. And that's essentially what he's doing. So sin is a constant assumption here, I'm convinced. And, and, and if the reading of the proslogion itself maybe leaves you wondering about that, I'll go to his meditations and prayers. And <laughs> as you know, that's where he, you know, he, he bases himself completely before God. Yeah Any other questions Yes please how How would you Sorry the end Yeah So the question is, um, um, with with Anselm in mind, could that in some ways reinforce the hyper-individualism of our society? And and, and if that's not necessary, how could you counter that, right? Um, It's a great question. Um, There's a number of things that go through my mind. I'm not sure where to begin with this one. For Anselm, as for the medieval mind in general, the journey toward God is an ecclesial journey. It's a journey in the church and through the church. And the search for the face of God is not a solitary search. In some sense, it's an individual search, but it's not a solitary search. It's a search within the community of faith. And in this particular, for this particular book, um, and for Anselm and his community, it is a search as a community of monks who are engaged in a common, common pilgrimage toward a final end. Just um, a little aside here: Book of Exodus. You know, when you read Gregory of Nessa, fourth-century mystic, um, you might think it's all about Moses' individual journey up to the up, up, up to God. But but of course, the Book of Exodus, the Book of Exodus ends with what? Chapter forty. It's the building of the tabernacle at the last chapters of Exodus there. And then the glory of the Lord comes down in the very end. In the very end, the glory of God comes down. And then with the tabernacle, God's glory there. God's glory comes with the Israelites. It's not just about Moses, it's about the people of God. Monica, same thing, Monica and Augustine. There is a sense, and I think Augustine does this deliberately in the way that he constructs his confessions. uh, There is an ecclesial element here. It's not just about... It's not about a a flight of the solitary to the solitary, the alone to the alone. Some understandings can be that. It's not that for the Christian mystic. Um, The Christian mystic relies on the preaching of the gospel... And on the sacraments. And even when the mystic prays alone, it is precisely in that prayer that he is never alone. Um, so Christian mysticism always has a corporate aspect to it. Anselm writes his book, yes, for himself, I'm sure. All our books, if they're written well, are written for ourselves. <laughs> but but he writes them for the community that he loves. Um, that all that said you know yes hyper individualism is a very very serious problem and we're in a North American culture that's individualistic in in, in a modern sense of the term in a negative sense of the term but we should not in reaction to that forget that each and every one of us um, within the church, needs to make peace with God. And that each and every one of us faces an individual, as an individual, the judgment of God in the end. And so personal disciplines are not individualist disciplines. There's a difference between those two, I think. Um, And so the corporate is something we should never use as an excuse to sort of ignore the personal. Um, so, yeah, could it lead to a hyper-individualism? <laughs> yes, it could if you misuse it. <laughs> yes, it could. Uh, does it have to? Uh, no, I think not. Well, thank you. Thank you.